from WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Wednesday, October 11th, and we have a lot for you today. We'll discuss your yours and my favorite subject, and also Greg Titus's favorite uh, subject, who's joining us on the soundboard today through the glass, Medicare. So stay with me. It sounds boring, but it can be a life and death issue and save you thousands of dollars if you are turning 65. So we're going to get into that. Then we'll have some fun along the way with Vermont broadcaster, interviewer, and all-around great person, Fran Stoddard, who is in a new partnership with UVM. If you want to join us, and I hope you will, the number to call is 244-1777. My email, vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. But first... There are moments in this life when the pure, unadulterated evil is unleashed on the world. The people of Israel lived through one such moment this weekend. So began President Joe Biden's speech yesterday about the attacks in Israel at, quote, the bloody hands of the terrorist organization Hamas, a group whose stated purpose for being is to kill Jews. This was an act of sheer evil, Biden said. But sadly, he said, this is not new for the Jewish people. The attack has brought to the surface painful memories and the scars left by millennia of anti-Semitism and genocide of the Jewish people. So we are all getting a crash course in Middle East politics and learning about groups and geography most of us knew little about. Gaza, Hamas, Fatah, Israel and its history. Biden was careful to distinguish between Hamas and the Palestinians. Hamas is the armed wing of the Palestinian effort to carve out a homeland for themselves or and self-determination. Biden said Hamas does not stand for the Palestinian people's right to dignity and self-determination. Its stated purpose is the annihilation of the state of Israel and the murder of Jewish people. Hamas offers nothing but terror and bloodshed with no regard to who pays the price. Most Israeli experts welcome Biden's comments. Arab actors in the region said they wished he had been more aggressive, calling for a ceasefire and a stop to the violence as Israel prepares for a ground invasion of the area we know as Gaza or the Gaza Strip, which is lived in by Two million plus Palestinians. Biden did have this warning that deterrence is undoubtedly a key part of the reason for this strong statement about the U.S. stance in the region as leaders are eager to stop the crisis from expanding. Biden said, let me say again to any country, anyone thinking of taking advantage of this situation, I have one word. Don't. Don't. Our hearts may be broken, but our resolve is clear. So Biden is determined to limit the spread of the fighting by shoring up alliances and partnerships. He's making calls to leaders throughout the region, including Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu. Secretary of State Antony Blinken travels today to Israel and Jordan. The U.S. is taking, talking to Israel and Egypt about establishing a humanitarian corridor between the Gaza Strip and Egypt that will enable Palestinians to evacuate. So imagine you're a Palestinian in the Gaza Strip that is about to be invaded by Israel. You have to leave your home. Where are you going to go? The president's speech was not without notice to Netanyahu, who has vowed fierce retribution against all Palestinians in the Gaza Strip for the actions of Hamas. Uh, he, he warned him to uh, limit the, the ground war to, to it, it matters uh, that you that that Israel not be indiscriminate in what it's about to undertake in Gaza, and they need to distinguish between Hamas terrorists and the citizens, the Palestinian citizens of Gaza. How they do that, I don't know. And this all takes place uh, against the backdrop of. Uh, disarray in the United States Congress, which is unable 
to take any action uh, on this or any other issue because they do not have a Republican Speaker of the House. Uh, the White House is trying to get the Senate to confirm Jack Lew, Biden's nominee to be U.S. ambassador to Israel. Listen to that again. The United States does not have an ambassador to Israel. Uh, this is a crucially important position in ordinary times, but even more so in a crisis. Uh, United States Senator Ted Cruz, a Republican from Texas, has been holding up this nomination. And that's it. it without a speaker, uh, the, remember, in the Constitution, only the House of Representatives can appropriate money. So any spending, any weapons delivery uh, and, and funding for Israel in this situation and for the people of Gaza, that has to start in the House of Representatives. And the Republicans in that in that chamber do not have a speaker. Now, they are apparently today going to host and hold an election for speaker between uh, Representative Steve Scalise of Ohio. Uh, uh, actually, I don't know where Scalise is from. And Jim Jordan uh, from Ohio. Uh, but just as that's about to happen, four former wrestlers from Ohio State University step forward to uh, claim that Jim Jordan covered up for a sexual predator when he was an assistant coach at the for the Ohio State wrestling team. One said, do you really want a guy in that job who chose not to stand up for his guys? Is that the kind of character trait you want for a House Speaker? Remember, the House Speaker is second in line to the presidency. So these are not uh, issues to be trifled with. With that, we're going to take a break. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. You're listening to WDEV, and we'll be right back to start in on our Medicare explanation. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. If you want to join us, the number to call is 244-1777. Medicare. If you're turning 65, it's time to sign up for the federal health insurance program known as Medicare. And you know who is signing up? Me. So I wanted to spend some time exploring the issue because if you're like me, you are suddenly under siege from insurance companies, brokers, and coaches, all telling you to sign up and to pay them to help you do that. Well, you don't have to do that because you have us, and to help us along the way, we have a doctor and Medicare expert with us. His name is Dr. Marvin Malik, and he joins us on the show. Dr. Malik, welcome. Good morning, Kevin. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, so as I said in the introduction, we're in the enrollment period for Medicare if you're coming up on your 65th birthday. So, But before we get into the details, why don't we start with the history? Uh, I know that Medicare is a government-sponsored health insurance program uh, passed by Congress in, I think, 1965. But uh, why don't you take us through some of the history? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Before I do that, uh, let me just mention that your initial sign-up for Medicare needs to occur within three months of when you turn 65, regardless of what time of the year that is. So this open enrollment period, which is the predicate for this show, is because the renewal, if you're staying on Medicare, you, you have to renew every year, renew your coverage, and tell Medicare what kind of, uh, what, which plan you want. And that has to occur between October 15th and December 7th. But again, when you're turning 65, you need to register for uh, Medicare within three months of your birthday. And if you don't, um, you pay a penalty for the remainder of your life. Your fee, your um, premiums to remain in Medicare B are higher uh, for the rest of your life. So, uh, so let's then, let's let's stay right with that detail. I am going to turn 65 on March 22nd of next year. So what is my window for enrolling? Yeah, so if your birthday is in March, um, you can enroll, I think, beginning on December 1st. And you have until, let me see, June. Yeah, June, the end of June to enroll. Okay. But and, I, could, I can enroll yeah. as early as this year uh, in December. 
December 1st. Yeah, it's the seven-month period with your birthday in the middle of it. Okay. That's the rule. Don't ask me. You know, that's that's the way they've decided to do it. That's the way they decided to do it. Okay. And yeah. and uh, I I have with me a stack of paper from Vermont uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield and various other people who have discovered me either online or some other way. And I'm getting, I'm besieged with mail. But before we get to Medicare original and Medicare A, B, D, and the supplement and Medicare Advantage and all that stuff, let's go through the history. Yeah, that sounds good. So um, the history really goes back to the 1940s when uh, during World War II, with all the inflationary pressures of uh, war, wartime spending, governmental spending, um, the Roosevelt administration instituted a wage price freeze. However, a, a rule got promulgated in whatever the relevant agency is that said that even though you couldn't strike, the, a union couldn't strike for higher wages, they could uh, ask for and demand uh, better benefits. And at the time, uh, pretty much nobody in the United States had or very few people in the United States had any kind of meaningful health coverage. This was different from Europe, by the way. In many European countries, including Germany and England, they already had uh, national health coverage. Anyway, so uh, the union movement, which in the 40s and 50s was very strong in the United States, unlike today, um, they began to do this. And health care back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s didn't cost that much. So um, many unionized workers began to receive health coverage through their workplace, and that coverage would cover the worker and, and the worker's family. And that continued right through the 1950s, again, with an ongoing strong union movement. Many employers who didn't have a unionized workforce didn't want one, and so they would begin to offer health benefits too to maybe to keep unions from having an argument, you know, to um, – be able to uh, unionize their plant. Anyway, so between so that trend led to uh, widespread health coverage uh, extending to about 50 or so or 55 percent of workers and their families by the 19 the early 1960s. So if you think about what that left us with, you now have people who are not in in a workplace that offers health benefits. This would especially include low-wage workers or poor people, disabled people couldn't work at all. And then the elderly who weren't working anymore because they had retired. And all of those people who actually have high health needs, like a unionized worker, a worker who's working at a plant and their family's probably relatively healthy, whereas the elderly and the poor tend to have higher health care costs and face more illnesses. So you had medically needy people in large numbers in the United States by the 1960s who had no health coverage and faced uh, almost certain bankruptcy if anything major happened to their health. And so in the 1960s, that's the period where there were a lot of other social movements going on, and everybody knows about the civil rights movement and then the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War movements. But really, there were a lot of social movements occurring during that period. And one of those movements was to for universal health care. Now, even before that, after, the, after World War II, many European countries facing the rubble of World War II, the devastation left by what that war had done, uh, began to have national health plans. So Britain changed from national health uh, insurance to actually having a formal national health service. And in France, you know, they enacted a national health plan, and this was true throughout Europe. And Harry Truman had offered such a plan, which had widespread public approval in 1946 and 7. And then the American Medical Association spearheaded with their figurehead. They used Ronald Reagan as the uh, person who articulated it, conflated universal health coverage with socialism and communism. And, of course, that was the period of the Red Scare, and so they managed to fight off uh, Truman's health plan. So in the 1960s, when many 
elderly and poor people were really in bad, a bad situation with health coverage. They didn't have any. Um, the social movements began agitating uh, Lyndon John Kennedy and then Lyndon Johnson to try to do something about it. And after Kennedy's death, Johnson was in a strong position with the Democratic Congress. But nonetheless, there were a lot of forces, including still the American Medical Association, opposing it. And so the grand compromise was the passage of Medicaid. Medicaid is the program which is state-administered that applies to poor people and disabled people with relatively low incomes. It's administered at the state level, and it's not the topic of today's show, so health care for the poor maybe can be a topic for a different day. But right. the other program they instituted was Medicare, and that program was to take the other big population, the big group that didn't have coverage in the 1960s, and that was the elderly. They also included disabled if you were chronically disabled and had been disabled for two years, you were also going to be in the Medicare program. So that passed. They, I know, I do not know the political machinations behind, you know, behind the scenes that led to the structure of the program. But they divided into Part A, <clears throat> Part A, and Part B. Part A was to cover hospital care and a little bit of rehab. With a lot of qualifications, uh, after you left the hospital, you would get some days of rehab, eventually extended to around a couple of months. It's a complicated benefit. Anyway, and then Part B was going to cover mostly doctor care at the time. Since then, this Part B has grown to include lab tests, x-rays, uh, like cancer chemotherapy infusions, so a whole lot of other, basically all the outpatient care, even outpatient surgery. So Medicare B has grown a to a considerable degree. Right. One of the reasons for the separation was that Part A was going to require that every hospital in the country not discriminate against any group, including black Americans. So every hospital that was going to get Medicare comp uh, money had to not discriminate and accept white and black people and everybody else so so let me let, so let me stop you there so <clears throat> you've now described medicare part a and b which as i do my reading at the kitchen table that strikes me as what we what a lot of people are telling me is original medicare and that i should sign up for both is that right yes it is right taken together part a and b are called original medicare they later on uh, added on it in, in 2003, they, 2006, they implemented another bill. We'll talk more about later, but the, that, the big part of that included a drug prescription drug coverage, which had never been part of Medicare before. So nowadays, if you want to, if you're in part A and B, which you want to be, if you're over 65, you also need to get uh, part drug coverage, which is part D. And I just want to say you also need to enroll in that within the same time period of enrolling in Part B or you face a penalty. So you got to – the way the 2003 legislation worked was that instead of having the government just provide prescription drug coverage as part of government's Medicare program, they subcontracted it to private insurance companies. You can imagine the lobbying effort that went into that. And so you have to find one of these private companies that sells prescription drug insurance. They're not that hard to find, but you just look up Medicare D on the Internet and Medicare D insurers and you'll find it. And then you put in your county with zip code, I'm sorry, your zip code, and you can figure out how to get prescription drug coverage. But again, you face a penalty for the rest of your life if you don't sign up for Part D as well as Part B uh, within – uh, three or four months of your 65th birthday. Okay, so, so there's Medicare Part sticker. A, B, and D. Is there a C? <laughs> there is a C. And Part C, um, well, I may, let me just continue with the history and we'll get to Part C right away. Okay. So in in the one of the issues, though, with the benefit within Part A and B, and D as well, really, is that all three of them have a lot of deductibles and co-pays. 
you pay the first several, you know, $1,500 with every hospitalization in Part A. Part B, in a way, is even worse because basically with Part B, which now adds up to more money than Part A, all the outpatient and lab and doctor care, all of that, specialist, specialist care, you pay 20% of all. There's a deductible, which I think is about $230 or so, but that's the least of it. It's to 20% co-insurance that every bit of the way, every dollar you spend on Part B, which can get into thousands and thousands of dollars. I mean, cancer a single cancer chemotherapy drug might be over $100,000 in a year. So if you're paying 20% of that, this that would be a huge burden for well over half the population, most you know, more well over half the elderly population of the United States. So by itself, really right from the start, the benefit was never good enough. And from my point of view, if if you want to take one, you can call it a political action after listening to this show, you should write Sanders and, and Becca Ballin and, you know, our our congressional representatives and insist that they improve coverage in Medicare so that you don't have these huge co-pays and deductibles. At any rate, by 1966, there were already insurance companies offering what what are now called Medigap or Medicare supplemental plans. And that is an option that covers in all of these, uh, most or at least most of the holes, most of the deductibles and co-pays that unfortunately Medicare leaves for people to pay out of pocket, otherwise pay out of pocket. Initially, when they were first introduced in 1966, they didn't cost that much. Um, but now they do. Now they're, the average one is around 165 or so dollars a month, which adds up to around $2,000 a year. Now, by the way, the, everybody, even if you're in any plan, whether it turns out to be Medicare Advantage, which we'll talk about in a second, everybody has to pay that almost that identical amount to the government every month once you're in Medicare to get Medicare B. That's the premium for Medicare B that goes to the government. So, in other words, if you're if you buy one of these Medigap plans to cover the the gaps in Medicare, the deductibles and copays, you're paying you end up paying 164 165 or so a month to the government to get Medicare B, and in addition to that, that almost identical amount to these private insurance companies to sell this supplemental coverage. So, if you do the math on this, you're now up to around four thousand dollars a year just to have to have adequate coverage. Now, the the positive part of all that is that these Medigap plans really do cover pretty much all the gaps. You, you may pay a $200 deductible, but that 20% I talked about, co-insurance, that's totally covered. And the, and the big gaps in the, medic, in the hospital coverage is also uh, totally covered by these uh, Medicare supplemental plans. So... Um, the, so, in other words, once you've paid that, all that money for a Medicare supplemental plan, not only do you have great coverage, but you can go to any doctor or specialist in the entire country who takes Medicare, which is the vast majority of uh, family practitioners, internal medicine, you know, adult medicine specialists, and, and also subspecialists in, in really every specialty. Dr. Malik, just a quick quick reintroduction to this issue. I'm looking at a uh, piece of paper that I got along with a lot of other pieces of paper and brochures from <clears throat> Blue Cross Blue Shield of Vermont. And it, there, there's one page that's helpful, which is, here are three easy steps you should follow. One, enroll in Medicare Parts A and B. Two, Enroll in medic in a Medicare supplemental policy and three enroll in a prescription drug plan, which is what you described as part D. Uh, and then it gives a number to call, which we'll get into later. Is that correct? Is that the course that the, that the average, uh, Medicare enrollee should follow? And that's what, that's an, that's an option and, I would argue the best option, and as I was right when we got cut off before the break, um, I was sort of finishing up the discussion of what 
doing what you just said, signing up for A, B, and D when you turn 65 and maintaining that throughout your retirement, it gives you great coverage. Um, you have, when you go to see the doctors and, or need hospital care, you have minimal deductibles and then uh, you get full coverage without co-pays. So that's really good coverage. As I mentioned, between the Medicare premium, uh, the Medicare B premiums and the premiums to get the Medigap plan, you're talking about $4,000 a year, 2000 for the Medicare and 2000 for the private supplemental plan. And then a drug plan can cost anywhere between $10 a month and a whole lot more if you want really, really great drug coverage. So you would ask, so that's really, really good coverage. You're safe. You can go to any doctor. There's no networks. You have no co-pays. There's no, and nobody's going to deny care. You're going to get the care you need for all the services that Medicare covers, which is very broad. Um, it, the big exclusion is long-term care, which, again, could be the topic for a different show. But um, you asked earlier if there was a Medicare Part C. So let's get to that. Great. Um, by the 1980s, the in private insurance companies, which had previously been selling care pretty much to younger people, workers, people healthy enough to work and their families who usually were pretty healthy too. But their pro and, and that seemed like a good deal for them because they, they'd really rather not cover sick people if they don't have to. And so they had all the healthy people enrolled in their plans and the sick people were going to be picked up by the government. So that all looked really good for the private insurance companies. But then by the 1980s, they began to notice that there were no more companies signing up for people under age 65, all the businesses that could afford health coverage had it and the rest couldn't afford it. So they are now, their industry was stagnating. So they took another look back at both the poor people and the elderly, first the elderly, and they said, well, really, a lot of elderly people are actually pretty healthy. So maybe we could figure out a way to get into the med get some of the Medicare money to keep increasing our market share. And so they began lobbying. And at the time that was the era of uh, privatization, the Reagan administration. And so they had a friendly government in Washington and they succeeded in creating what ended up getting called Medicare part C later was renamed the Medicare Advantage program in 2003. And basically what that program did was instead of when you go to, so with the, what, what we described earlier, you go to the doctor, you show them your Medicare card and, and, and your insurance, your supplemental insurance card, and they just pay the claim. That's not how Medicare part C Medicare Advantage works. Instead, the government gives them a glob of money every single month. And I mean a large amount of money. It averages, ends up averaging 16000 plus a year that the government gives to private insurance companies, which are called Medicare Advantage plans now, to take care of you and provide all medically necessary services that Medicare covers. So that, that's, how the, that's the Medicare Advantage program, and, in the, and that now is an alternative so in other words, instead of, uh, instead of signing up for a Medicare B supplemental plan and a Medicare D drug plan, you have the option of signing up for one of these private insurance companies, you know, with the name of Medicare Advantage plans. Now the other, so that was one victory to create the Medicare Advantage program, but there was a second victory and that was to overpay them. And the overpayments to Medicare Advantage plans are critically important because what it meant was that they could they were getting extra money, an unjustifiable amount of money. And just last week, a landmark study came out from uh, a, comp a group of uh, doctors and researchers working with physicians for National Health Program that the magnitude of those overpayments are somewhere in the range of 22 to 35 percent. So that's the extra money that these these Medicare Advantage companies are getting. And basically, they're doing four things with this money. 
two of which really help people who sign up for them. One is the premiums to get into a Medicare Advantage uh, program have become really low, often, you know, $100, sometimes zero, sometimes $200 a year, rather than $2,000 to get into a Medigap plan. So the premiums to enter the program, you start out paying the $2,000 a year directly to Medicare, but then the addition, that's to the government's Medicare program. Everybody pays the $2,000, so that's, that's for starters. But beyond that, to get into a Medicare Advantage program, you may have to pay nothing more. Um, and the other thing that they've given to people um, are these extra benefits. And there's a whole menu of extra benefits they're allowed to provide. Uh, some of the ones they almost never provide are like bathroom safety and home aids for people who are disabled. They almost never provide those benefits. But what they do provide are fitness center coupons and eyeglasses, often $100 a year to go toward eyeglasses, part of the cost of a hearing aid, and some a minimal, you know, a modest amount of dental coverage. None of these are that big, but they look good when they're promoting the program. So those are two benefits that these overpayments allow. And the other two things they do with the overpayments, which you, one you mentioned, which is the, all this incredible flurry of advertising. That's, they spend the money doing that. And finally, they can retain a lot of the money and give it back to their investors and pay their CEOs huge amounts of money. And it turns out that the profitability of Medicare Advantage plans to the insurance companies is much greater than their profitability selling these supplemental plans that we talked about earlier. Okay, so, so that's why that's why all the advertising is geared toward getting you into a Medicare Advantage plan. They're not they have big disadvantages we haven't talked about yet, but they they're much more profitable to the insurance companies. So so you would argue that if you are a 65-year-old Vermonter who is self-employed, let's let's take the self-employed Vermonter first and then we can move to State government employees, et cetera. But if, if you're like me, you would recommend signing up for Medicare Part A and B and D to get your drug coverage. Is that right? I do recommend that, and it's what I've done myself, and it's because of the disadvantages of signing into a Medicare Advantage program, which we have not yet talked about. Right. Okay. So let's leave Medicare Advantage off for the moment. So basically, <laughs> uh, it's four things that you got to do, everybody. It's Medicare. You got to sign up for Medicare Part A. That covers hospital care. Medicare Part B covers doctor visits and, and other things. Then you got to sign up for Medicare Part D to cover your drugs. And there's also this Medigap or Medicare supplemental plan, about 165 a month, that you should sign up for. Do I have that right? That's correct. Okay. Dr. Malik, uh, we, we've established that you need to sign up for Medicare Part A and B, a Medicare supplemental policy, and Medicare Part D, and can I just read off the number in order to do this? The sheet in front of me says that you should call the Social Security Administration at 1-800-772-1213 uh, or go to ssa.gov. But for general information about Medicare, just go to medicare.gov. Is that the right way, Dr. Malik, to sign up? It'll get you into Medicare A and B, and uh, yeah, and if you, anyways, yes, you can do that, and then the rest of the information is at Medicare.gov, including they'll tell you based on your zip code what all the options are in terms of the supplemental private coverage too, and the medic the Medicare website. Okay, all right. Now uh, we do we did get Jane from Putney back on the line, uh, Jane. Thank you for waiting. You're on the call. You're on the call. Great. Thanks for taking the call. Um, just this month, I read that two groups of doctors in San Diego said they wouldn't continue accepting Medicare Advantage plans. Um, 
and in other words, be part of the network. And another hospital in Oregon did the same thing because they said that Advantage plans get in the way of the patient and the provider. The American Hospital Association stated it was concerned that the MA plans restrict or delay patient access to care, and that adds costs and burdens to the system. And they all encourage patients to choose traditional Medicare uh, because the MA plans haven't lived up to their promise. So my question is uh, to Dr. Malik, do you think that this withdrawal of providers from the MA plans is an increasing trend, and what impact will that have on Medicare beneficiaries, including the retirees who've been kind of forced or put into these plans? Yeah, so thank you for the question, Jane. Um, we didn't yet talk about the disadvantages of Medicare advan- of what are called Medicare Advantage plans, but the, the disadvantages are quite significant. And what you mentioned is they, they're trying, these plans try to create a network and of hospitals and doctors, and their, their goal is to pay less to this group. And the network can be quite narrow. So from a patient's point of view, um, if, if you're confined to a network of doctor, of a specific group of doctors, and you end up with a healthcare problem that is a little unusual. For example, the usual thing now, say for aortic stenosis, is to get a certain procedure that they can do at most tertiary care hospitals. But I've had patients who needed their entire aortic area, not just the valve, but more uh, redone and sort of refurbished. And that's a procedure that you really might want to go to a higher level of care. The same thing often happens with cancer. Even though everybody knows about the common kinds of cancer, a huge proportion of cancer patients have types of cancer that are a lot less common and unusual, and you might want to get an opinion from a cancer center like Dana-Farber or um, Memorial Sloan Kettering. In other words, there's many situations where a little local network in a Medicare Advantage plan is not going to do the trick. And what happens is the second, so the network is the first big disadvantage. You may literally have to pay 100% to go to the, the best doctor for your health problem. And for me, this is one of the biggest reasons I would not sign on to a Medicare Advantage plan. But the second thing is uh, the co- there's significant co-pays. In other words, the premium to get into a Medicare Advantage plan may be zero beyond the $2,000 you pay to the government. However... Um, once you're in, if you actually get sick, the co-pays can be huge. And the way they generally structure the co-pays is for something like vaccines, you may pay nothing. But if something is actually wrong with you and you have to go to a specialist or get hospitalized, you're going to pay a whole lot. And they're allowed, your co-pays are allowed to be as high as $8,300 a year. And that's if you absolutely stay within their network. And if you dare to stray from their network of doctors, then it can be their your out of pocket payments can go to as high as twelve thousand, nearly twelve thousand five hundred dollars. Furthermore, um, your your plan may or may not include the drug coverage, but whether or not it does, you have to all, you may pay a lot of money for drug coverage too. So your out of pocket payments in a Medicare Advantage plan can be quite large. Whereas if you had bought a Medicare supplemental plan, like Kevin mentioned earlier, we talked about earlier, you wouldn't have all that, except, you know, with the exception of what your drug plan is all about. And they vary a lot. Jane? So the final thing, the final reason, getting to Jane's question more squarely, though, is the, the, the big other disadvantage of these plans is that they require something called prior authorization to get a procedure before you can get a procedure done. And you may remember that I said that these Medicare Advantage plans are supposed to cover all the services that Medicare covers as long as they're medically necessary. And so you can guess who defines what's medically necessary. So if your spine surgeon says you need an MRI of your spine, you may wait a long time to go through this bureaucratic process, which can really burden your primary care doctor and sometimes the specialist, and they may deny it. I'm, I practice hospital medicine. We often were denied payment after we took care of a patient in the hospital. And some of these denials are just outrageous. 
And given that they don't pay, a lot of the plans don't pay very well to hospitals and that they're denied payment for the entire hospitalization, a lot of hospitals are getting really sick of these plans and they're starting to refuse them. Okay. So that's what Jane was talking about. All right, Jane, thank you for calling. Uh, we have one more call to get to. Mary from Montpelier, you've been very patient. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Uh, this is Mary Alice, and I'm calling uh, about my old plan, which is the Plan J. I've been on Medicare for uh, over 20 years. And I've seen it change over the time where it's getting worse and worse and, and you can only apply for Medicare Advantage. They're, they're pushing it so much and, uh, it's just terrible. But anyway, I wanted to know whether I should change my plan, uh, Marvin. I pay $254 a month for my copay. Because I have been grandfathered into a plan that is no longer offered because I guess the insurance companies didn't make enough money on it. Uh, and uh, it, it covers all my co-pays and deductibles. In other words, you were able to get that kind of a plan when Medicare first came out, but now you can't. And the thing is that, that the central government is trying to get rid of regular Medicare and have everybody on Medicare Advantage. That's what they want to privatize it all. And I just uh, am so worried about it. I want to keep it public, even if I have to pay $254 a month for my copay. Thank you. And please answer me. Okay. So first of all, I don't have a specific explanation for why you're paying too, that much money unless you were – okay. So the other – the fourth big disadvantage of Medicare Advantage plans, as I mentioned, once you get – if you develop an uncommon expensive illness, you may not – You there's a good chance you're going to have trouble with your Medicare Advantage plan. You're going to pay big copays. You got this network. It may not work out for you. There's all the, they're allowed to d deny care, deny prior authorization. So a lot of people, when they actually get sick, they want to get out of the Medicare Advantage plan and go back to regular Medicare, including a Medigap coverage, the Medicare supplemental plans. And what happens is, since sick people tend to leave Medicare Advantage plans, the the supplemental plans are allowed to say, well, you got out of a Medicare Advantage plan, wonder why, and they can charge you more. They're allowed to deny you coverage entirely or charge you more for the rest of your life. So that's another disadvantage of getting into a Medicare Advantage plan is that if you want to get out of it and you become ill, you may really pay through, you may pay a lot of money to get the coverage. And so Mary Alice is $254 maybe for that reason. I could say more about that. I think in general, in the United States, even for people under 65 as well, health coverage is unstable. Everybody strives to get the best coverage they can, and every year many people just can't. Okay. So the, uh, the U.S. healthcare system is like a big game of musical chairs where every year people are left out with really bad coverage. Joe in South Burlington you are on the line with Dr. Malik. Thank you. I have two quick. Uh, one was an observation, some information I got from AgeWell that um, in terms of switching from Medicare Advantage to Medicare, traditional Medicare, you had six months before the underwriters would look at your health history. I think that's a federal law. Some states, four states have made that a state law. I don't know if Dr. Malik can comment on that. Then the other question is, um, about privatizing traditional Medicare. I think there's an initiative that was started under the Trump administration that's being continued under the Biden administration under the innovative programs to privatize traditional Medicare. I was told last night by Robin Lunge on a program that that might end. So I'd like Dr. Malik's comment on that too. Okay. Thank you for the questions, Joe. I, I want to go back to Mary Alice just for a second. Uh, to get reliable information about your individual situation, like Mary Alice's uh, plan, 
I recommend you go to the Area Agency on Aging, and they have the most unbiased information. So any of you, if you want individualized counseling, that's the best way to do it. Insurance brokers, unfortunately, you know, many of them are very reputable, but they do have a bias. They're paid more if they get you into a Medicare Advantage plan compared to the other option. So um, there is an effort to privatize traditional Medicare, and it's all part of the effort of the insurance industry to make money off government funds because they've have exhausted the business sector. Businesses in the United States just can't afford the kinds of prices that are happening in healthcare, which is the big reason why health coverage for people under 65 has been deteriorating. So, uh, yes, there's an effort to privatize traditional Medicare and involuntarily sign people into these programs. And it's, horrible, it's appalling, and you should write a letter to the editor uh, and, you know, do, write your congresspeople to get rid of these programs, to, to leave traditional Medicare alone. You're paying $4,000 a year, you know, twice what the people in the Medicare Advantage program are, are paying just to avoid managed care, and now you're, you're going to end up in it to the extent that these these, uh, this privatization initiative is happening. I, so I, the real question. Sorry, go the ahead. The real question from my point of view is, is the Medicare program going to be a profit opportunity or is it going to be a caring program that says to you, if you become ill, we will take care of you? Exactly what you want your doctor and nurses to take care of you to say. I, a program that simply covers you when you're when you're not well and helps tries to keep you healthy too. Okay, we're gonna take another call from Mary in Randolph Center. You're on the line. Welcome, Mary. It's been a long time. Good morning, gentlemen. Yes, yeah, so I've been on uh, Medicaid for I don't know probably about four years and did all the signups. Uh, luckily, I had a friend that did it before me, so. She went through some of the, the questions. But the one thing that I was confused about is is my um, supplemental. I didn't know who to go to. And one day I received this lovely letter from an agent in Barrie. And I thought, I'm going to call him, local people, and talk to them, which I did. Um, I got a great plan, just what I needed. Um, uh, my supplemental is like 123 a month, and you know it's good coverage. He said he had had some heart issues and used the same plan, and was very happy with it. I said okay. Um, I also got my drug plan through that agency in Barry, and um, the first year it was I don't know 15 dollars, and then the next year it was 30 some dollars, and I thought ooh. But then the next year it was going to be like 47. I said oh no 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 no. So I called the agent. And luckily, I'm very blessed. I don't take any medications, prescriptions. And um, I said, this is too much. I don't take anything. He said, all right, let's get you this plan. This will cover you. If you need to change it in the future, we can do that. $8.60 a month. So people need to also know that they can shop around and change things. I think it's only once a year. The doctor can probably explain that. But the local um, agent, um, I don't know if I can say their name or not, but sure, go uh, ahead. Local agent, it was um, the Leo J. Dutal Agent Insurance uh, right in Barry. Uh, the last name is D-U-T-I-L. But they've been really good. It's a father and son. They've answered my questions um, and given me a very, um, I think, custom policy to what I need, um, to what they had available. So, okay, Mary. Anyway, Thank you yeah. for the call. We're going to take one more call before we have to go. Barry in Barrytown, you're on the line. Is this for me, Barry? Yes. Yes. Hi. Um, just a couple quick points. Um, uh, <clears throat> I tried to buy supplemental insurance once from Blue Cross Blue Shield. It started out at $222 a month. Within four weeks, they raised it to 282 I called them on it. They lowered it to a third plan for 252 and I just dropped it. Uh, next point is I'm a veteran, and, it, and the VA really only 
provides free medical care for service-connected injuries. Everything else, they bill you Medicare or whatever other insurance you have. And the OCC, which is the old choice program, uh, which the VA claims works with providers on the outside, participating providers, um, every time we try to use them, um, the, the OCC through the VA always uh, fails to uh, pay the copay or the supplemental part of, of you know, any bill. Those are just my points when, you know, being a disabled veteran. Yeah. Barry, thank you for the call. Uh, yep. So, Marvin. I, I do have a comment on that. I, go ahead. Yeah, and this is. This is the U.S. healthcare system is unstable. It leaves many people with without good options. Once again, I would say though that both Mary Ellis and um, and Barry could should at least try out the area agency on aging in their area, and which in our locally it's Central Vermont Council on Aging, and they have counselors who can see if they can do a little better for you. I, again, I. Most of the plans, if you when you sign up initially, they cost around 165 per month currently per Part B, and I'm not sure the reasons why yours are so expensive, but I think it's it's worth looking into. And by the way, Joe's point about after for the first six months after you get into a Medicare Advantage plan, and you can get out of it under most circumstances, but I'd be really careful about that. Okay. Personally. So. Uh- we have to go, but uh, this, this has been incredibly uh, interesting and informative session. And uh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do a part two. We have to do this again because uh, there's so much to understand. Uh, Dr. Marvin Malik, thank you for joining us about this. Again, uh, you're going to call the Social Security Administration at ssa.gov to begin your process to enroll in Medicare Parts A and B. For more information about Medicare, you can go to medicare.gov. And then uh, you can, if you have further questions, feel free to send them to us here at Vermont Viewpoint, at uh, vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We will get those questions answered for you. We'll send them to Dr. Malik. He can answer them. Uh, I certainly am not the guy to uh, answer them. Dr. Malik. Thank you, and we'll have you on again very, very soon. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio.